Welcome to episode 74 of Love That Album Podcast. This episode promises to go X-rated. No, not that type of X-rated. Ah, that's much better. Morris is joined by Eric Reanimator to deliver a tale of two bands named X. First of all, they discuss Los Angeles band X and their album from 1982, Under the Big Black Sun. Then, they bring to the table the 1985 album, At Home With You, by the Sydney band X. Were the two albums really punk? What is their legacy? All this and more will be discussed in episode 74 of Love That Album. Nobody worries about kids listening to thousands, literally thousands of songs about heartbreak, rejection, pain, misery and loss. Did I listen to pop music because I was miserable? because I listen to pop music. Well, music is my life, man. What do you want me to do? Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. You're listening to episode 74 of Love That Album podcast. Hope you enjoy the new intro format that we have to the show. My gratitude and thanks to my beautiful wife, Joanne, for obliging me in doing that intro. And as you heard in the intro, my guest this time around, and I'm reluctant to call him a guest. He really is as much of a part of the show as I am. Hello, Eric. Welcome back Hello. to the show. Hello. Thank you for having me back. You know, uh, It's a strange thing. You know, you've been associated with the show so long, both in your Album I Love segments and also the last year and a bit doing your separate compilation editions of the program. And yet this is, I think, only the second time that we might have actually spoken as part of the regular show. Yeah, I think so. Most of the time we've spoken has been as kind of end of year wrap ups or yep. middle of the year, you know, kind of deals. Mm-hmm. I, I think I'm going to have to organize a shooting the shit before too long because I'm sort of amazed me that we only had one of those episodes last year just for you know, the, the wrap up we need to pick a topic and, and just yeah. sort of shoot the shit about that so that maybe we'll do that in August I've got the next few shows planned out but we might make an August thing for that anyway how have things been going down your neck of the woods Mr. Reanimator well it is officially springtime which uh, in Michigan means that's about a week long <laughs> uh, we, go, we go from uh, the uh, the ice and the snow to the humidity and the heat pretty quickly in these parts of the woods so but uh no it's things are pretty good just uh living the dream um tomorrow actually my brother and i are going to go to a record show i have not been to a record show in quite some time uh back in the 90s there used to be a lot of you know bootleg cassette tapes and cds and that kind of thing and you know people trying to get rid of all those old lps they had laying around yes and then in the 2000s 
when I lived in Minneapolis, went to a couple of record shows that were a little more of a balance of, uh, of LPs and CDs. And, but it's probably been almost a decade since I've been to one of these. So, so I wanted to know whether there are many of those record fairs that go on around your area per year, like you know, several times a year or just once in a blue moon? Um, I, I think they're about every three or four months. Um, like I said, I, I know there's, I haven't been to one in a long time, and I, we'd intended to go to the last one, but somehow missed it. They do happen, and I want to say it's quarterly or three times a year or something like that. Yeah, we have uh, a few of them, quite a few of them around Melbourne per year, and uh, I've gone to a couple in recent times with Max, and it's it's a bit of fun. I don't come away with tons and tons of stuff or anything like that. That's not really my way, but I often go and find, you know, one or two little gems and don't have to go spending 30, 40 bucks, which seems to have become the the norm in the last couple of years. I'm far from a record collector or anything like that, but it's just nice to know that, oh, there's that album, which I've been meaning to uh, listen to for years. Okay, I think it was Wendy or someone might have said to me once, you just wait for things to come into your lap. And I think that's <laughs> sort of true. I'm not sort of actively searching out that deep nugget that I'm really after. It's just, you know, oh, that's something I've meant to hear. Okay, I'll go get that. So hope you and uh, your brother have a, a lot of fun with Thanks. that. So, um, all right, anyway, so uh, let's, uh, b- before we go talking about about uh, today's albums, which, as you heard in the intro, Australian X and American X albums. We'll get into that shortly. We have a little bit of feedback. How lovely. I'm always quite pleased to get a bit of feedback, but this is really quite special because it led to something of a, a new segment that I'd introduced in January, and I've been underwhelmed with responses, unfortunately. <laughs> I'd come across with this idea where I wanted to plug and promote the music of people on the Love That Album Facebook group because I just think it's a nice thing to do and I'm always looking forward to being introduced to new bands and uh, new singers out there and always you know, giving a little bit of a plug to the listeners out there. So what started off is just a general email from someone saying that they enjoyed the show led to something else. So I'll read this to you. This is from a fellow called Jason McIsaac and he says, Hi there. I'm finding your show late in the game. I'm listening to the Monkeys episode, and it's brilliant. I'm just wondering if you still do the show. Well, yes, I do, Jason. Thanks so much. I'm writing you from Nova Scotia, Canada. And Weddings, Parties, Anything came to my town when I was a teenager, and I had the good fortune of spending the day with them and doing laundry with them. I was blown away when you mentioned them. Your show is simply fantastic. Well, I was blown away by the fact that Jason had done his laundry with Weddings, Parties, Anything, which if uh, you go back in the archive enough, you'll find out that Michael Persh and myself had gone and covered their third album, The Big Don't Argue, and a lot of fun, but I've always gone and uh, brought them into the conversation in one form or another even on the facebook group or through the show and i was just blown away that he'd done something so exciting as wash his laundry with uh, one of my very very favorite bands of all time that email correspondence didn't end there i went and sent jason a note saying thank you very much for uh, writing um, I, I love the fact that you spoke and did laundry with uh, the weddows are you a musician or just a music fan or what what's your background and he went and wrote and said well i'm a member of a group here in nova scotia called the heavy blinkers and i went and did a little bit of research there and the heavy blinkers have been a going concern in one form or another for i think since the early 90s so quite a while there there no johnny come lately's although mind you i think it'd been 10 years between their most recent album and uh, the previous record so uh, they've, they've not been like always uh, around uh, very uh, prolific or anything like that but it seems that the weight had been for good reason so he uh, very kindly offered to send me a copy of uh, their 
fifth studio album and they're actually recording a new one now I believe this album is called Health and I gave it a listen and my goodness it is just absolutely gorgeous if you're a fan of uh, of Smile era Beach Boys then you'll really really love this there's some beautiful orchestration on this and just some lovely melodies and why I compare it to Smile necessarily rather than something like Pet Sounds is because there's a million ideas in each song it's not just like here's the melody here's the song but it seems that they go to all different sorts of places but the songs really really work and I'm a big fan of this album and I'm more than happy to give it a bit of a plug I guess that you can uh, look up the heavy blinkers on their website I I think there's a band camp link somewhere I'll find that I'll put that within uh, the promotion for uh, this episode of Love That Album and really this is about as gentle as this show is going to get so uh, give this a bit of a listen this is uh, a track from their album Health it's called Child of the Radio and after uh, we've listened to that then Eric and I will be back to uh, start off the program proper with a discussion of the American band X and their album from 1982 called Under the Big Black Sun. You're listening to Love That Album with Morris and Eric and uh, let's have a bit of a listen to Child of the Radio from the album Health by the Heavy Blankers. So long, baby For me to want 
We hope you're enjoying the show. You can get previous episodes at either lovethatalbum.podbean.com or lovethatalbum.blogspot.com or search for Love That Album in the iTunes store. If you want to get in contact, please email Morris at rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash love that album and start a music related discussion. Hey all you podcast listeners, here's an update. See here. We know some of that bad brown bass that has been going around, but we've got an alternative. See here. Have these headphones here. Throw them on. See here. Movies for your mind. See here. See here podcast. We discuss music related films once a month. Find us on iTunes or at see here. That's S E E H E A R dot podbean dot com. Just relax. Listen. Flow downstream. See here. Morris over here, Eric over there, and I'm feeling a little bit embarrassed because I should have said in that intro, as Eric went and reminded me, that normally, Eric, as you're familiar with, if you've listened to the show before, that Eric has his segment, An Album I Love, but because he's doing the show proper with me, I threw it out there that I wanted to get a guest presenter to do the Album I Love segment, and because he's like, you know, been retired from podcasting for a little while now, I thought I wanted to tempt back into the fold. Mr. John Ross, the knife lecker, the man who is the administrator and host of that most excellent Facebook page, Feed My Ears, and I really, really love John's voice and his way and his approach of podcasting. It's a shame that he's not doing it anymore, but he said to me, and he's assured me, it's limited engagement only in between the two albums that Eric and I will be discussing today. You'll be hearing from Mr. John Ross and his album I Love segment this time. I'll leave it till we approach the segment before I'll tell you what it is that he's going to be can, covering. Can, uh, can I just jump in and say that I have actually heard the segment and uh, I enjoyed it quite a bit. And I know that John was a little uh, little shaky on, on his presentation, but he did just fine. So, John, no worries. Just, you know, record, record what you're going to record and go with it. Yep, absolutely. And I will say that, in a way, it's thematically linked with what we're doing because that's what you do, Eric. So uh, he's kept up the spirit. But we'll talk a little bit about that uh, as we get to that segment. But for now, we're here to talk about two bands named X. There's an American one and there's an Australian one. So we'll start off with the American one. So, Eric, this was your pick. Would you uh, like to lead off and give us a bit of a background where you came to X and the like? So X is one of the uh, the American punk rock bands from the 70s. They were based out of Los Angeles. And I've always helped maintain that for some reason for me, the, the West Coast, Southern California, and San Francisco area punk bands of the, the late 70s and early 80s are the ones that I always really, really identified with 
more so than the New York or the London punk groups. X was part of that initial scene, and they, they, they are a going concern. In fact, I think Dave McElmore said they're playing in his neck of the woods tonight. Right, right. Or the other night. So at any rate, they are one of the one of one of those iconic American punk bands and they were featured in the first Decline of the Western Civilization documentary by Penelope Spears. Uh, all three of those documentaries are finally coming out on Blu-ray and DVD this summer, but mm-hmm. they were prominently featured on that documentary and are uh, probably what, considered one of the best bands from that scene as far as not only their musical chops, but also their lyrical chops. Unfortunately, that scene went from kind of a more artsy, pulpy kind of L.A. scene into a what was considered a meathead hardcore punk scene in the in the uh, early 80s. But X kept going, and like so many other bands we've talked about, their sound became more roots rock. If you listen to interviews with the band or uh, follow their records, you'll, you'll know that that roots element had always been part of their, their musical background. You know, they were country fans. Lead singer John Doe, in, in addition to being a musician, has been an actor. He's appeared in films like Boogie Nights and Roadside Prophets. El Dorado. Why do you want to go there anyway? Because of this. You're selling drugs? It's ashes. Met this guy. Joe Mosley. Dave Coleman. And he had the coolest ride. He just died. On the bike? No. Playing some video game. Which one? In either small roles or lead roles. There's actually a film called A Matter of Degrees from the 80s where it's a, he plays a college radio disc jockey that I really need to go back and revisit. Because among other things, it's got one of those great 80s college rock soundtracks. Right. But anyway, X were probably the, uh, probably the band most likely to break out into the mainstream. The album we're going to talk about was their first major label album and definitely had some mainstream appeal. I would also note that along the way that um, John Doe especially has played with uh, a lot of other bands like the Flesh Eaters and uh, the Divine Horsemen. He's, uh, he's played you know, with, with the, the Alvin Brothers and just done a lot of amazing music over the years. Well, I just have to sort of interject at uh, that point that I have seen his ex-bandmate Dave Alvin only this week. I didn't actually know that uh, Dave Alvin had even made it to Australia, but he was on stage this week. You know, Dave and Phil Alvin had uh, reconciled their differences you know, due to family health issues and the like, and they put out a fine album last year in tribute to Big Bill Brunzi, and they toured here as part of the Byron Bay Blues Festival, the regular East Coast Blues Festival that we have here every Easter, and they did a side trip to Melbourne, so finally got to live the dream, and he said it was his first time here in 30 years, and I hadn't even known that he'd been here, but it was very, very exciting to see uh, Dave and Phil Alvin. I know that's got nothing to do so much with X, but, uh, oh, well, I guess it does, I guess, in a way, because Dave had been a member of X at some stage, but yeah. uh, just wanted to uh, bring that in. So that's anyway, fine. to go on. So um, probably the decline of the Western civilization was uh, on, on VHS, and it was popular in the, you know, my, my, my group of friends in high school, and at some point, I think my brother got their first album, uh, Los Angeles, on cassette tape, and we used to listen to that in the car a lot. And uh, as things just just evolved, you know, you you pick up albums here and there, kind of like we were talking about with the record show. And uh, somebody mentioned um, the album we're going to be talking about today, Under the Big Black Sun, to me. And I don't remember if it was uh, my friend Matt, who runs a local record store, or the guys from the band Jet Black Berries, which uh, is one of my all-time favorite bands. But somebody mentioned the, the record to me, and I have an LP copy of it. And when 
the idea of talking about the band X came up. You know, you asked me which album I, I thought we should cover, and this is the one that that I was like, well, it's uh, kind of a transitional period between their punk roots and kind of uh, their college rock commercial era, mm-hmm. and I just I thought it would would fit nicely with what I know you're into, and it, you know, it's also the album that I actually own on vinyl, so okay, that was that was why I picked it. So okay. Look, I have to say at the outset, I truly don't know why I hadn't searched out X a whole lot earlier. There are a couple of reasons why I'm sure I should have investigated them. First of all, uh, I'd read a lot of articles that had put them in the same scene. I mean, I know that you sort of gone and already referred to them as part of that Los Angeles punk scene, but mm-hmm. possibly because they were stable mates with two favorite bands, one who I've already gone and mentioned, well, you know, Dave and Alvin with the Blasters, who I was a big fan of, and also, as you know quite well from previous shows, that Los Lobos are just about my favourite band on the planet. So the three bands, I believe, had played gigs with each other at various LA venues at one time or another. So just by virtue of the fact that I you know, was a huge fan of Los Lobos and, and the Blasters, and by association, I probably should have searched them out earlier. And it only occurred to me recently, oh, hang on, wait a minute, they're the band that open up the Richard Thompson tribute album, Beat the Retreat, and they they do a cover version on that album of Shoot Out the Lights. <laughs> that I'd read of the album at the time when I'd bought it, like in one of our local newspapers, mm-hmm. had said it was the weakest track on the album. And I remember at the time thinking, au contraire. I just absolutely loved it. It was bristling, it was vital, it was just absolutely everything that I thought that Richard himself would have liked. It was one of those rare occasions where I thought that the, the cover was almost better than, than the original. And that's saying something considering how much I actually worship it, the the Church of Richard Thompson, but their cover version absolutely. There's something about the production there that just really brings out the life of the song. And, and actually, as well on that album, think that the band do. They're the background band for a couple of other tracks on the album, in particular Bob Mould doing his version of Richard's "Turning of the Tide," and that's also really, really excellent. You know, DJ Bonebreak on the drums. My God, he's just a, a whirlwind of energy there. So I'm really, really glad that. I'd asked you, hey, let's do a program together and that you brought this album to the table. So I now want to search out everything else. I should say, as well as listening to Under the Big Black Sun, I did get some time to listen to their album Los Angeles, their first album. And I'm sure I want to go further on down the road. I've got to hear a few tracks of the knitters on YouTube. Now I think I sort of want to go out and search out everything. I know that there's, in in that Warner Brothers series, there's that five-pack album sort of thing that they're doing those reissues that they've done the last few years and yeah i don't think it's available easily locally but i'm going to see if i can track it down well i i actually went and picked up a copy of their early 90s album hey zeus on cd because i remember it coming out during the heyday of the alternative era and then being on mtv on uh, 120 minutes which was the late night alternative music show and uh the host referring to them as punk legends and that 
and the members of X just kept saying, no, no, call us alternative. It sells more records. And <laughs> <clears throat> that Jesus record was one that kind of a lot of people thought, eh, an old punk band trying to, uh, you know, trying to make a few dollars off the return of punk rock. And, it, it, you know, I've listened to it once or twice. It's a pretty good album. So I actually need to go and, and pick up some, uh, some of their records that I do not have in my collection as well. Right. But right. so this was your first X album. This I played this one before I listened to Los Angeles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Let me let me ask you before we get into the music. What do you think of that album cover? I was actually going to bring that up and speak to you about this uh, a little bit later on the show, but now's a good time okay. to do it. First thing I thought, as well as the music, I knew that this would be something that would be. I could understand why it was right up your alley because it looked like a poster for a noir film, and given that it's Los Angeles as well, I thought this is they must be into noir or, or uh, you know some pulpy detective yes. novels or something like that. That's the first thing I thought. Yeah, and you know, I look at the cover for those who haven't seen it. It's basically like a hotel room window with a wrought iron bed frame and a bedside table with um, with like a, a bottle of something, and it's it's in black and white. Standing across America is a street on which crime flourishes. It is the street with no name. And it, it's kind of, it has kind of that Charles Bukowski, uh, Tom Waits, Warren Zevon kind of a vibe to it. Mm, right. You know, very, very much a pulp kind of Jim Thompson deal. Now, what I was going to say is, well, in research for um, today's episode, we both went and watched a film that, and I should say a, a big thank you to uh, my good friend Pat for loaning me the DVD of this documentary. It's called X, The Unheard Music. And it wasn't so much a band biography, but it was, you know, a little bit of dialogue from the from the band and some performances and interview with, from uh, Ray Manzarek of The Doors who played very strong part in their first few years, I guess. Yeah, and he actually produced this album for them. He was right. the producer on this album. I'm really quite excited and quite fascinated with the fact that you know Ray Manzarek, who I guess the early 80s was a, the period where The Doors revival was uh, was taking place and he could have just sort of ridden that i mean obviously you know the doors were not going to be a performing entity anymore at that sort of stage but he could have focused all his energies on just sort of publicizing uh, the the doors album reissues but no he found the time and the interest to go and promote this band that he obviously found exciting i mean there was still a bit of a doors link because you know on los angeles their first album they do an almost unrecognizable version at least by you know the Doors' original version of Soul Kitchen. So I looked at the uh, the title tracks and I was sort of like, when they get to the chorus, I'm thinking, oh my God, they're doing Soul Kitchen by the doors. And um, I, I'm always excited when I hear 
a cover version that takes a song somewhere completely different from the original. Otherwise, I don't really see the point in doing a cover version, but X did a really, really exciting version of it. And I'm wondering whether they were Doors fans to begin with and said, hey, Ray, we'd really like to do this, or whether Ray suggested it to them. I would, I would guess that, I don't even know if they were involved with him at that point, but the members of, of the LA scene especially were not afraid to uh, talk about their influences in some ways. You know, I read an interview or heard an interview with John Doe when his uh, covers album of country classics came out a couple of years ago. And he was talking about how, you know, in the early days when he was uh, forming X, that there was a lot of putting away the, uh, the music that they had grown up on and doing something new. But at the same time, that L.A. scene, there was a lot of garage rock covers floating around that people were doing. Mm. There was, uh, you know, and the doors were part of that. So, you know, obviously they weren't going to go and cover Light My Fire or the end or something like that but sure. the idea that they would pull out um maybe an album track was was a little more likely mm-hmm. so i remember in uh, one of our conversations i think a couple of weeks ago you went and said to me um i recommend that you go out and search out some of the solo stuff of uh, john doe which i actually yep. had already gone and bought myself a copy of john doe's recently released best of album i know that a lot of people sort of poo poo but i certainly don't i love getting a good best of album as an introduction to uh, an oh, artist. Yeah, totally. and it's a very comprehensive one i think on yep rock record the interesting thing because he'd gone and said to me um yeah it was he found it was another case of a punk band sort of morphing into a bunch of uh, crusty old country singers yep. but as the film sort of pointed out i didn't think it was like particularly for me a great documentary overall but there was certainly a lot of informational nuggets that i really enjoyed about it and the fact that we had a band like this possibly in a way that i'd reference them to a, a band from brisbane that are really held in high esteem and love much lee down here called the go-between there's a cat in my alleyway dreaming of birds that are blue Sometimes go when I'm lonely This is how I think about you There are times that I want you I want you so much I could bust I know a thing about lovers Lovers lie down in trust Love goes on anyway Where you had, certainly by the end You had a couple of members of the band who were highly trained musicians left with the rest of the band who were enthusiastic musicians but were more in the songwriting department, not necessarily highly trained. And so we have a band like X where you had the uh, the songwriters and the poets in John Doe and X in Savenka, yep. coupled with Billy Zoom and DJ Bonebreak, who, uh, and like showing in this film, you're seeing Billy Zoom, who's an absolutely incredible bluegrass guitar player, and DJ Bonebreak, who'd started out as a jazz and an orchestral musician. And it was those chops which didn't dictate what they did within X, but it certainly gave them the strength and the talent to sort of pursue those other directions. And it just gives me all the more respect for what they did because they had not only the talent, but they were interested in pursuing other directions so i found that really mm-hmm. fascinating well they, they had the they had the chops you know they weren't just they weren't just a couple of kids who learned a couple of chords and had something interesting to say mm-hmm. you, you had um you had guys that had come up you know learning different kinds of music along the way and and also the fact that uh Exine and john doe came to the band from a position of poetry they uh, i think uh, when they both sort of moved to la they both met each other in a poetry class 
Yes. And I think, is it Exene or is it John who's actually teaching poetry classes nowadays? I'm, I'm not sure. I wouldn't be surprised if it was Exene. Just the fact that they they come to this band bringing poetry rather than, like, I mean, you've gone and said that you found the LA scene a whole lot more interesting than what was going on in New York or, or what was going on in London. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they sort of approach it from a more artsy perspective as opposed to just a, a bunch of kids who are rallying against the world which you know nothing wrong with that but it's just i find that interesting as a different perspective and they they had things to say about the world or about their community or about their lives which were not necessarily uh, in line with everything is wonderful everything is wild and great <laughs> but they did it in a more interesting and more articulate sort of perspective with their lyrics oh most definitely they they i would say they were probably more literary for sure mm. that that they uh they were drawing from from uh you know seeing all of the kind of small town suburban issues that punks were talking about in uh you know in every scene but especially in that west coast scene and they they were able to to tie it into um you know the the kind of literary like pulp literary not not like high literature but, mm. but definitely that kind of beat pulp poetry of the uh of the 50s and into the the early seventies with kind of the, the neo resurgence of, uh, you know, when I think of guys like Tom Waits or, right. or Warren Zevon and the kind of things they were talking about. I, I certainly like, as I said, the two albums that I've heard were their debut album, Los Angeles and the album that we're going to be talking about shortly uh, under the big black sun. And I've noticed that there seems to even be a difference in the lyrics. Certainly there's a difference in the musical style between the two albums, Yeah, but even, even lyrically, I think that, they're sort of opening up and having going more towards the storytelling in the uh, Under the Big Black Sun. And that first album seems more to be from a place of that pure poetry and uh, the influences that you were talking about there with the early Tom Waits and um, yeah. uh, and the like. They, they've maintained a little bit of that in Under the Big Black Sun. We'll probably quote a couple of examples, but it seems like in, in Under the Big Black Sun, they're sort of going a little bit more towards storytelling or mood setting in, I wouldn't say necessarily a conventional way. It, it's still influenced by you know what Exene and John Doe do, but mm-hmm. they're opening themselves up to different experiences, just like they are with, uh, with the music. And the other thing I sort of wanted to say is it sounds like even though some of the songs here touch on some tragic themes, it seems like that they are having a lot of fun with what they do. And you, it no, you notice that in any performances you might see on YouTube or anything that you see them doing in the film, the, the, as I said, not the biography, but here's an introduction to this band X. And it looks like they're, you know, Billy Zoom smiles and they're all having a lot of fun with what they're doing. And I just found yeah. that really very refreshing. Well, this is also their third album. So if you, if you go back to the first album, they're drawing on, you know, three years of being together as a band and writing their early songs. And in some ways, that's a compilation of the early singles and whatnot. Mm. And, and then you get the album uh, Wild Gift. And then this is the actual third studio album. So they're at a point career-wise where not only are they taking that, that step to a major label, but they're more comfortable in the recording environment. This isn't their first time out. You would guess that a lot of these songs have probably been, been well-tested yeah. and, and uh, in some ways or not because of the structure of recording and being 
in basically the midpoint of their career. So I think that probably gives it a uh, maybe a weight and a confidence. That's the other thing. They, you know, this is 1982. They've been a band for five years. They have survived the first wave of punk rock, which pretty much goes from 1977 to about 1980 in most cases. And then you get your second waves coming in in 80, 81, 82. But this is one of the bands that survived, stayed together, that grew organically and became more and more proficient at what they were doing. Mm-hmm. So the question is, would they have been able to do that same thing nowadays if it started in 2015? It, it's easy to say no because of the way the industry is structured. At the same time, it's, it's easy to say, you know, I, I, you know, I can't point to a band that's, that's playing the role that X did in the culture that, that they were fulfilling in 1982 because, at least in America, things are so different where, you know, labels, the lo- label line has become very blurred as far as major label and minor labels. Radio has become uh, nowhere near as influential as it was. And the time we had college radio, which would play bands like X, but that has largely been co-opted by, by uh, communication departments that want to train people to be the next radio DJ for the big stations or whatever. Right. And during the 90s, college radio was such a force due to the alternative revolution that, you know, labels started playing, paying attention to what was going on in college radio. So you don't have as many people who come in to, you know, play whatever they want for two hours. So I think that, uh, you know, it's a totally different landscape now. A band like X might be embraced by the no depression crowd today, but they might not. So but in some ways, it's a, it's a lot more accessible to every band in the world, but at the same time, it's a lot more fragmented. And it's some ways, it's harder to uh, to hear the signal from the noise. Let's talk a bit about the album itself. We've okay. done a lot of bit about the political and the social background there. And as, as for the music itself, well, while we are definitely sort of looking at a change, as I've already got to mention, between Los Angeles and Under the Big Black Sun, and I'm sorry, I hadn't heard, uh, was it Wild Gift uh, yeah. in, in between? But you know, there, there's definitely a change. I mean, we're not talking necessarily a radical change. They're, you know, X are still X, uh, and it's not like they've sort of gone from punk to baroque. But there are definite influences and differences. I, I put it down to a, I don't know, maybe a more sophisticated approach to the songwriting or at least the arrangement. It's, it's not like they've taken a brash wild band and wiped the rough edges off and, and given them a sheen and certainly Ray Manzarek would not allow that even if the band had decided that they wanted to go into uh, that direction but there's really something very very tribal and forceful though not forced about the album opener and you know like I'm always big into the calling cards the opening yeah. track the calling card and what a calling card this album has with its opening track The Hungry Wolf. Oh, most definitely. It, it's, it, it is really a, a howl. I mean, just like a wolf, like a hungry wolf would, would do. It's, it's a howl about just, just announcing that here we are. This is what we're, we're talking about. And this is, as we already talked about, this is an album that's uh, it's got the word black in the title. And it's, it's dealing a lot with very heavy, mature issues. And, you know, there's a, what, how, how do you say it? A, that howl, that, that expression, that scream at the world that, that's in, you know, that's in, 
at once it's saying we're here, and at once it's announcing that there's there's a certain amount of pain going on. Mm-hmm. And well, it, it's interesting with um, with this song, it's more of a celebratory thing I sort of see rather than necessarily about the pain because they've gone and said that or, or I think John Doe had gone and said in, in the film that he'd always found it fascinating how wolves mated for life and which which I guess explains like their, their fellow band Los Lobos and their longevity but he um, he sort of transferred that analogy to wax themselves and their, and their entourage they figured that they would always be friends and stick together mm-hmm. and he presumably included that relationship his relationship with Xene which didn't hold on a romantic level but you know still remained on a friendship and working level uh, yeah. to this day so they um, I, I definitely see this song as uh, an exciting celebration musically I uh, just I really love it it's got and I won't be saying this for the first time about this album it has that sort of like, uh, Bo Diddley-esque feel on the it's really tribal pounding on the floor to yeah on here it's just absolutely I know that a, a word that you like to use in a lot of your album I love reviews is the excitement and the vitality of something and that's what really draws me into uh, this album and this is just such a brilliant way to open it and John Doe on this song sounds like he's trying to channel Jim Morrison and I know that could be an easy thing to say oh well you know they've got Ray Manzarek producing you know, that's likely but I don't think that there was anything to that level on Los Angeles or anything or not much else on this album where he does but there's his baritone and his intonation into the singing really draws out for me that jim morrison's sound and i think this is a song that if jim could have heard it wherever he is in the ether he'd be madly in love with it and think damn i wish i'd written that or 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 sung that just absolutely fantastic and billy zooms very vicious but disciplined guitar playing on this and I love this bit like where I, I think in the middle where we're hearing DJ Bonebreak sort of doing his, his uh, Bo Diddley rhythm. And so like in the in the bridge, we hear Billy Zoom do something on the guitar that makes it sound like the wolves howling. I just think that's just an absolute little stroke of genius. So, um, yeah, an absolutely great calling card for this. Album. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a standout track on the album. Mm-hmm. I would say that. So another theme on the album is Mary Savenka who was Exene Savenka's older sister and reading up in the notes and I think they spoke a little bit about it in the movie was that she was very, very close to her older sister and Mary Savenka uh, absolutely loved the fact that uh, John and Exene were an item and she encouraged them to get married and she just wanted to make sure that they were together and Exene was looked after and they got married and then four days later Mary Savenka was killed in a car crash. So... Mm -hmm. There's a few songs on this album that cover that thematically. One of them actually a cover, so it's definitely interesting. I mean, we, we got this noir theme on the album, and and noir we associate noir with death, and we have that here, but it's a, a, a bit more tragic because this is not fiction. This is uh, Exene sort of uh, releasing her demons, and yet, as I said, this is an, an exciting and vibrant sounding album it wouldn't be x to be sounding too dour too too morbid but more about i guess celebrating mary's life than mourning her passing well i I think there's there's both of those things in there but i think that it goes through the uh the range of emotions that people deal with when they have a major loss right you do get that that reflection and that sorrow, and then you get that a certain amount of um, energy and rage, and that certain amount of realization that you know life is to be lived, and this is you know you have to carry on, and that sometimes screaming at the sky is is how you, uh, you how you keep going. Mm. She uh, she definitely has that sort of 
voice that is sort of wanders in between childlike waif and also wanting to scream at the sky. It's not a conventional singer's voice, is it? No, it's not. And we should say that one of the unique things about X was that you have this male vocal, female vocal dynamic going back and forth. Right. which was not necessarily something that you found in a lot of punk bands or a lot of bands, period, at the time. Her, her voice sort of reminds me a bit like a cross between Patti Smith and Kate Pearson of the B-52s, and yet it's still something that's all her own. It's in some ways like Lee Hazelwood and Nancy Sinatra, but a lot less polished. Right, right. But it's still incredibly appealing, maybe all the more yeah. so appealing because of it. So I, I mentioned about these uh, these songs that came, I guess, in tribute to her sister Mary. And the first one I sort of want to you know, touch upon a bit is, it's actually a cover, but it's one that I was well familiar with. It's uh, a song called Dancing With Tears In My Eyes. This is an old, an old Tin Pan Alley song composed by um, a couple of guys called Joe Burke and Al Dubin. And I found out in my research that Al Dubin was actually responsible for that tiny Tim classic tiptoe through the tulips. <laughs> now, I first heard this song about maybe 20 years ago or so. There's a blues singer called Alvin Youngblood Hart so on the second album that he put out which was a pretty sort of uh, loud, raucous, bluesy sort of album. But he did this one thing with uh, in Walt's time, which was dancing with tears in my eyes. And it was, you know, this beautiful little Tim Panelli sort of feel in, in Walt's time. Actually, more of a country feel as he did it. And here it's done as a really, really exciting sort of vibrant 4-4 uh, time tune in, in their inimitable style. And it wasn't punky, it was more more of a power pop sort of thing with a bit of a 50s rockabilly influence. And uh, just hearing it, I just found it so exciting and so wonderful. And it was, it became apparent, you know, I, I guess in, a little bit in my mind, but also in the liner notes for the, for the CD. This is the Rhino edition that I had, and there's some great liner notes there. And they said that it became obvious to all and sundry who listened to it that this was Xene singing about uh, Mary, not about dancing. The, the song, if you haven't heard it before, is uh, Dancing with Tears in My Eyes Because the Girl on My Arms Isn't You. And it's not, in this case, about the breakup of a relationship, but her very real loss of her sister. And it just takes on a whole new meaning after sort of hearing it in 20 years, for the last 20 years, in one context. And I just love that they picked this song and decided to do that with it. It's just absolutely fantastic. Well, there's a long tradition of uh, that L.A. punk scene in taking uh, old blues, old country, old garage rock songs and recasting them in a, in a different kind of setting or getting them or using them to say something different than when they were originally intended to. Mm -hmm. And uh but also, you know, in the early days, I think it was a way for bands to pad out a set with 
when they didn't have enough original material. But at the same time, it was it was a way for them to learn their chops and to bring attention to songs that had had meaning to them. Probably in this case, I mean, obviously, it, it, it was a matter of this kind of fit thematically with what they were doing, both sonically and lyrically. And as you said, it, it, it's part of the two or three songs that, that are directly about uh, Exine's loss of her sister. The other song that's uh, more obviously about her uh, relationship with her sister was uh, Riding with Mary. This is a two-chord riff-based song that, um, you know, once again shows her devotion to her sister. And, and this is sort of showed a bit in the film with uh, some some of the uh, iconography in, in uh, Exine's own home. I, I think it was in her own home that there's you know, this religious sort of iconography and there, there's uh, this allusion in the lyrics to uh, a figurine of Jesus on her car dashboard, a powerless, sweet, forgotten thing. So the next time you see a statue of Mary, remember my sister was in a car. And I thought, wow, I, I can only imagine that must have been incredibly difficult for her to, to write and to sing. And it's, it's heartbreaking in the knowledge of, uh, of her fate. But I dig that in a way it's still subtle. And it's, it's not sort of over the top, beating at the chest over the death. Uh, but it, it's still no. just enough for you to be able to get the picture as to what Mary meant to, to her sister. And, and um, also there's that sort of line-by-line thing of uh, John Doe's baritone and Exine's almost, you know, I've mentioned this before, waif-like voice. Yeah. Just... The, 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 the contrast, the, the conversation that they're having in the song, it just it really, really works. And I should also mention on I don't know if you've heard this, but on the Rhino re-release, there's a different version of the song, yeah. slightly sped up, which I'm imagining that was done as a single, and I'm wondering yes. whether it was Warner Brothers saying, oh, well, we need something a little bit more commercial, put a piano onto it. And I sometimes like things being augmented with a piano because my rootsy head uh, sends me that way but I'm so glad that for the final album that they didn't it didn't need that pia- the, the little piano tinkling it didn't need it there no no I, I, I've heard it anybody wants to check out the album it is on YouTube in full with those bonus tracks mm-hmm. now I was listening to it again before recorded today and kind of, kind of a Radio Birdman vibe from it did you pick up that at all the album overall or oh no just it? just both versions of Riding with Mary um no I, no I wouldn't have really thought. I mean, there maybe there are other tracks where I would have said, "Yeah, okay, I guess that's good." Like a song like uh, "Because I Do," I would have thought <laughs> maybe because of its high energy, uh, had more of a Birdman vibe. But uh, no, I wouldn't have necessarily thought. I'd be interested in hearing what you think there. Well, in in the uh, the single version with the piano, that that reminds me of like "Man with Golden Helmet" kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. And there there was just something about the. Uh, about the instrumentation in the the album version that I was like, this reminds me of something from Radio Birdman that I just can't quite put my finger on. And it was the, I, partially that it had that, that same kind of energy. But I, I, I don't know if it was the bass or, or what. There was something there that I was like, whoa, that's total Radio Birdman territory. 
Right. But I, definitely with the the piano on on the single version, I was I was definitely thinking that's very much in, in that same kind of um, same kind of vein, or it just reminded me of it. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what are what are some of the highlights? Are there any other sort of like linked thematically songs that? Um that you picked up on? Well, I would say, first of all, that Riding with Mary to me is kind of the centerpiece of the al- of the whole album. Okay. That to me, it feels like that's that's the song on the, the record. I also really, really like um, Real Child of Hell. There's something about that that, I, you know, once again, I can't put my finger on that uh, just really kind of spoke to me. Yes. But I'm, I'm not sure if it's the energy or the lyrics or what, but it, it just, it, it wasn't like, I don't know, it's it's one of those things that it's hard to describe, and it's one of those uh, those songs that you got to go back to to try and figure out what it is about it that's that's calling to you. Okay. And, uh, so th- those 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 are the um, the hungry wolf, uh, Ryan and Mary, and real child of hell are the three big ones off the album for me. And then there was also an album or a song called uh, Blue Spark that makes me think of right the Blasters' uh, Blue Shadow for some reason. <laughs> sort of going to refer to uh, Blue Spark and that's probably a good time to do it as any. There are a couple of tracks from Blue Spark being one of them that sort of gave off in one way or another a bit of a pretenders vibe and I'm talking about oh, really? the, uh, the fund and Pete Fundin and James Honeyman Scott era of the band, which for me is the real pretenders. It sort of ends for me after the second album. But the song Blue Spark, not so much because it sounded like a pretenders song, but there was that moment where John Doe sounds like he's trying to do his best Chrissy Hind impersonation with the vocal vibrato that he does. Oh, 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 oh. and that's that's definitely a Chrissy Hind thing for me. In a way, as I say, it also makes me think a little bit of early Blondie for some reason. I can't quite mm. put my finger on it, but Certainly, you know, like pre-parallel uh, lines, Blondie. Yeah, definitely. And, um, but there's, uh, but yeah, DJ Bonebreak is definitely putting out some uh, very heavy-duty work. Not complex, but really solid and pounding. And also, once again, Billy Zoom puts out this killer guitar riff that's so well supported by Bonebreak and, and just, oh, it's just absolutely punchy, so punchy at the end of the riff each time so I'm yeah really very very keen on that song and the other song that sort of reminded me of those first two Pretenders albums is the album Closer The Have Nots Drink at the bar, nothing more, anything 
really sounds like it belongs on uh, either Pretenders 1 or 2. Uh, the guitar riffage and uh, it's sort of got a Martin Chambers style of drumming. And X at this stage, I guess, were equal parts punk and power pop. And when you read the title of the song, The Have Nots, you sort of think, okay, this is going to be a bit of a, a class wars rally. And certainly it is a little bit about the class, but not so much as a class war. It, it, it just It's not a rant. It's just a song about their memories of, you know, hanging out and having a drink in their local pub and uh, the people who hang out at their local bars and, you know, the, the working class people who are going after after work and going off and having a beer and it's really more of a celebration rather than a, a rant between those who have and those who have not as the, you know, the title goes so it's sort of an interesting choice for a title given that it's more of a celebration but it musically it really marries punk and country for me very very well and it just yeah once again it gives off that pretenders vibe for me interesting see I, i've never been a big pretenders fan so I don't, I don't hear those kinds of things. I'm not familiar enough with their catalog. I'd really go recommend that you listen to those first two albums because, uh, you know, beyond that, I mean, I, this is not to uh, sort of hang it. Uh, you know, if, if you're out there and you're a fan of uh, albums like, you know, Learning to Crawl and Beyond, you know, More Power to You, but those first two albums, for me, have a, a, a good marriage of pop sensibilities and a bit of a good punk attitude. And uh, I'd urge you to go listen to those first two albums. They're, they're really held in high esteemed by a lot of people who don't necessarily follow on from uh, what they ended up doing later so well yeah they're they're, they're really worth your time uh and probably the only other sort of uh track that i wanted to draw attention to and i've already mentioned it by name i guess was uh because i do It's, it's uh, you know, once again, it's just, I guess because of, of DJ Bonebreak's really, really exciting playing on here, and this sort of shows off his chops. We'd already gone and mentioned earlier on that he uh, had that orchestral and jazz training, and I think this is one tune where it's not necessarily that he is doing anything that's jazz-related, but he's showing off, all right, I've got these chops. And I remember watching uh, this uh, great documentary called End of the Century about the Ramones, and there was like a little <laughs> extra on the DVD. Marky Ramone says, look, I, you know, a lot of people come up to me and say, oh, well, you played with the Ramones, but, you know, you don't have the chops. And look, I can play that jazz shit any day. Let me show you. And, and he goes and does this big sort of around the kit, buddy rich sort of thing. But he says, but how many of those jazz guys and, and orchestral guys can do this for an hour straight and then he shows what he does with the remotes he says none of them could do it for longer than 60 seconds but in this context you know DJ Framebreak is sort of like, he's marrying everything. He's saying, right, look, I can do the, the Ramonesy sort of punky sort of thing, but mm-hmm. I'm also, well, not jazzy, but I'm going to show off my chops here. And I just find that it, it's a great song and it's you know, very, very exciting in what he does here. So There's a lot of snobbery by certain kinds of musicians about uh, playing punk music. And while on the surface it might not seem so difficult, it, to be successful, you you have to 
you you have to know how to be restrained and you have to know not only you know what you're playing but kind of why you're playing it and why you're not you know making it more fancy or whatever mm-hmm. it, well it's i think as a lot of real music lovers and and music well more to the point well, a lot of musicians will say who are open to all sorts of things they'll say it's not just what you play it's what you don't play it's knowing how to make the song breathe and I mean, okay, in because I do, I just find it exciting because he's throwing everything in there, he's throwing in the kitchen sink. But once again, what I really admire about this album, it's it's about their their approach to the songwriting. And as you know, uh, this show is a lot about the songwriting. Mm-hmm. They, they, they've combined the punk energy that they so love and really spoke to them with with some really great songwriting chops. They, they're a band who lyrically had something to say. They had great melodies and they just, they fashioned their songs. It wasn't about like, here's, here's three chords, what can we come up with? They actually sort of believed in great songwriting and uh, Zoom and DJ Bonebreak, who were not necessarily... They weren't the songwriters, but they knew what Exene and John Doe were after. They knew it was a very collaborative effort. And in that regard, I I think that it made all four of them great songwriters. And you've got, we haven't sort of gone and spoken so much about the lyrics a little bit, but this album has songs of lust, death, love, betrayal, and it all just fits the noir theme that they've cleverly applied on that front cover. So um, overall, for me, I mean, look, I, we don't do star ratings on this show, but if I were, I'd say that this is a four and a half to five star album. I'm glad. I, I just wanted to point out as well that um, this this album is very well reviewed by by the professional critics. Mm-hmm. You know, it was getting four stars and five stars and eight minuses and that kind of stuff. And the other thing I want to point out about it that I think we have lost in a lot of ways is it clocks in at 35 minutes right i I have a i've always had a theory that was actually pointed out by my brother that a great punk record has got to clock in somewhere around a half hour Mm -hmm. you start getting to 40 45 minutes with a punk record and you're 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 toast but if you can keep it around around a half hour you're you're golden so what you're saying here eric is because of the fact that we've spoken for this album longer than the album actually goes that this is not a classic punk podcast but you know uh, yeah. do, do we really want to? Do, I mean, you you've heard me do do ten minutes on a record, so I mean, yeah, that's very that that is very punk. So I've gone and dragged you into the mire. That's okay, as long as we don't get into like like three disc L, you know, epic LP. <laughs> this is not a yes podcast, I guess, is what I'm saying. What, what I can what I can say is that um, th- there was a point in my life when I was all about the progressive heavy metal and those those concept albums that were going an hour and an hour and twenty minutes. So mm-hmm. you know we could do Operation Mind Crime or Brave someday, maybe. All right, so here we are at the. Uh, I'm not going to say what minute mark. You'll look at your iPod and you'll know what it is. And uh, what we're going to do now is we're going to go to the album I love segment. Eric, get. Oh no, it's not you. It's going to be our good friend and compadre from the Feed My Ears Facebook page formerly of the Feed My Ears podcast, Mr. John Ross, a.k.a. The Knife Licker. John knows that uh, you always try to keep things thematically linked to uh, whatever the main album of the show is, Eric. So he went away and he came back and he said, all right, I'm going to discuss an album from a band called The Sneaker Pimps, and this is their 1996 album called Becoming X. You see what he did there? Ha-ha! And, you know, I think I might actually own a copy of this album. It's one of those... those I saw the uh, video on MTV and was like, ugh. And then over the years, it kind of grew on me. Okay. 
So we, we just talked about X uh, under the big black sun. Mm-hmm. If anybody loves this album, likes this album, and they want to step maybe two steps out of their comfort zone into something that is related, I highly want to recommend the album that John Doe played on a couple years earlier with a band that he's still playing. And let me make sure I get the title right. The band The Flesh Eaters, who were um, part of that Southern California scene. The album is called... A minute to pray, a second to die, and yeah. it's, I'll, I'll it's jump. In, I'll fair. jump in here. I'll jump in here for a second. Bernie okay. Sticky, Bernie Sticky, uh, on a previous See Here podcast, told me to go listen to that, and uh, I did. So um, that took me out of my comfort zone. Yeah, it took me out of my comfort zone. It's <laughs> taken me a long time to come back to that album, but it's it's very much uh, similar. But imagine a little more crazy and avant garde. So. Anyways, let's go. Let's go on with uh, John's okay, album so, that I love. So, knife liquor, John. Thank you so much for uh, sitting in Eric's chair, and uh, we're now going to go to his segment, an album I love. And he hopefully, you know, we hopefully we'll uh, drag him out of retirement, podcasting retirement yet. Uh, but uh, for as he calls it, limited engagement. Here's John Ross discussing the Sneaker Pimps and their 1996 album, Becoming X. Here's John. Hello, Morris and Eric. This is John, the Knife Licker, from the Feed My Ears group, Facebook, and, you know, around. You guys all know me. Anyways, I was asked by Morris to fill in this week, due to Eric being on the show, and do his little 10-minute spot. Um, Now, this is no small task, because we all know the reanimator is the master of the 90s awesome bands and talk so i'm not even going to try to copy what he does i just figured i'd talk a little bit about the sneaker pimps due to you guys covering x and x and their album being become an x nothing and i like them so that's the tenuous link between the three bands i guess x x marks the this review or whatever you would call this that i'm doing (laughs) oh my god i'm Terrible. This is why I got out of the game, Morris. Anyways, the Sneaker Pimps were formed in like 1994 by Liam Howe and Chris Corner. Um, they were kind of in the wake of the trip-hop movement of the early 90s in England. And uh, they kind of were riding on that wave, but kind of softened it down and maybe making it a bit more catchy. Um, taking in the rave, dance, um, electronica nascent movement that was coming, integrating some more of that. 
into this mix, they um, recruited Kelly Dayton. Now, Dayton was their magic bullet um, because she was a cute little Bjork-esque, um, very unique-looking uh, Irish mother and uh, Indian father. And she was real pixie-ish and had a nice, awesome, squeaky voice. Um, squeaky it probably doesn't do it justice. But she was a charismatic front woman and front and center in her videos. Um, they had a couple charting hits. Um, one that took um, kind of a dance crossover was uh, Spin Spin Sugar, which they uh, had some movement on the, in the club scene. Uh, kind of one of the first mixes of uh, alternative and dance. Well, not one of the first, but of the 90s that we know to that evolved today into bands like Churches and um, The Naked and the Famous. Let's play some Spin Spin Sugar. Like I said, that song was kind of a crossover uh, hit with uh, the dance club scene. Uh, it that's I find not overly representative of the rest of their sound. That's uh, like I said, more of a stretched out electronica. Uh, there were lots of remixes of "Spin Spin Sugar." The video was pretty trippy, um, but I would say the single that most defines the sneaker pimps, the one that everyone knows them for, would be Six Underground. Now, Six Underground exploded in 96 on the charts. Um, I believe it was number one in North America. If not, it was played all the time. Um, Funnily enough, the version at least played over in North America was uh, never credited to this on the radio, but it was a remix version, uh, the Nellie Hooper edit. Um, And as far as I can tell, the only difference between that and the composition of the regular one is a lot. Well, let's listen. One, two, one, two, one, two, one, two. 
what's up? As far as I know, that is the Nelly Hooper difference there. That was up, was up, because the normal version does not have that in it. But every version I ever hear played in videos and um, on the radio is the Nelly Hooper in it. I don't know. It's the only t- actually thing I can think of, an actual single I can think of, is an actual remix. I'm probably just I'm not thinking of no. Anyways, so that was a huge hit for them. Kind of brought uh, trip hop sounding even more mainstream and poppier than the charting previously charted Portishead and bands like that, paving the way for bands like Poe and uh, maybe some of Bjork's uh, poppier stuff. And then, like I said, into today's electro pop bands like Churches and The Naked the Famous take a lot from, uh, I think, this album. Um, they eventually suffered what I call Gwen Stefani syndrome, though they say it was just because in the follow-ups they thought Chris's vocals fit the music better. They kicked Kelly out, and let's face it, she was the face of the band, and all the attention was always on her. So rumor was it was because of that. Anyways, they all pursued their own individual careers to little effect. Actually, I believe Chris Corner is an actual pretty big producer now. I should probably look into it more. But the magic to me was the Kelly-fronted one album. Um, nearly a weak track for me there on that album for me. Really, I revisit it often. And uh, maybe one that should be revisited by other people as well. So, um, I hope this wasn't too rambling, Morris. Uh, love the show. Eric, love your opinions as always. And uh, I'll see you guys in the ditches or something. I gotta find a sign out. <laughs> Peace. Hi, I'm John Water. Yeah, hi, this is Dolph Lundgren. Hi, I'm Lance Hendrickson. Hi, this is Keith Gordon. Robert Pune. Miguel Ferrer. Nancy Allen. Robert Davi. Richard Elfman. Ileana Douglas. Patrick Warburton. Wingshauser. Cliff DeYoung. Steve Railsback. Mr. D. William Cass. If you haven't been listening to the Projection Booth podcast, you're missing out. Each week, the Projection Booth brings you in-depth discussions of some of the most interesting movies ever made. I'm Mike White. No, the other one. I'm the guy who wrote the film fanzine Cashiers to Cinemart since 1994. Since early 2011, I've been co-hosting the Projection Booth podcast. Try us, won't you? I never try anything. I just do it. Visit the Projection Booth at projection-booth.com. Thanks once again to John Knife Licker Ross, and I hope that really isn't the last time that we hear from him in the podcasting world. Maybe we'll bring him in for a shooting the shit or something like that. You know, just make sure that he keeps his hand in and he realizes how much fun doing this is. Oh, yeah. We never know. We might, we might get another Feed My Ears Mark II somewhere down the line. I'd, I'd like to hope so anyway. But once again, really, thanks very much, John, for uh, stepping into Eric's shoes for uh, this episode. And now, for the uh, second part of the show, uh, we're going to be talking about X, but not the same X that we spoke about in the first half of the show. So this is an Australian band 
called X. And basically, when you mentioned, Derek, that you wanted to speak about uh, Los Angeles X, I thought, well, this is a good opportunity. You know, you can speak about two bands. And I think I might have even sort of gone and mentioned to you sometime last year that this might be a good band to uh, discuss mm-hmm. on the show. And I figured I've yet to know, actually, what you think of the album. We'll discuss that. But I sort of thought at the time, this album might be right up your alley. So uh, the, this is a, a band originally formed in Sydney, but then moved down to Melbourne after a time. The album that we're going to be discussing is their second long player. It's called At Home With You, and it was released in 1985. So, I mean, like X from Los Angeles, they're also, I guess, nominally a punk band. And yet, they it, musically they sound uh, maybe not a world away, but they are very, very different to uh, the Los Angeles band X. Certainly, at home with you is a very different album to Under the Big Black Sun. Now, I haven't had a chance to listen to much else of Australian X, although I did hear a couple of tracks from uh, their first album. X aspirations and like Los Angeles is to Under the Big Black Sun X aspirations is to At Home With You is in some ways even rawer and At Home With You is far from a polished or sheen filled album it's it is really really raw the tracks that I heard but uh, At Home With You if you haven't heard it before is a very raw sounding album in a lot of ways but still sounds like the producer who i'll mention here is is a guy called lobby lloyd who uh, was very well known in um, the 70s as a uh, member of rose tattoo and also uh, the lead guitar player for his own band the colored balls before we sort of go into talking about the history of the band and a little bit about this album. I just want to know, start off, not necessarily, I, I don't know how familiar you were with the band or the fact that they existed, but what were your initial thoughts, Eric, about this album, At Home With You? So I knew that there was a, an, an Australian band called X. We should also say there's a Japanese band called X. I knew that there were there was these three bands that had the name X from around the world. And I, I don't think I'd ever really heard the Australian X. They might have been on uh, one of those Australian punk compilations I have. I, I didn't dig any of them out to take a look. So I was aware of them. I had not heard them that I could remember. So this was really uh, when when you, we started talking about covering this album. It was the first time I really sat down and listened to anything by them. Mm-hmm. And I enjoyed what I heard. It's funny that you were saying that this is a really raw album because my impression is that it's a fairly polished album. Okay. That I hear it more in uh, context of what by 1985 is being called post-punk, which was some points reminded me a little bit of Wire, sometimes it reminded me a little bit of Gang of Four. So more of that, that kind of... So, third wave, I guess, in the UK, or second wave in the UK punk. My, my understanding is that after that initial 77 explosion, that punk went two directions, well, both in the States, but also in, in the UK. And uh, in the UK, you had post-punk, which was like Gang of Four and Wire, which I mentioned. Mm-hmm. And then you had the street punk, or Oi, which was Sham 69 and Coxfire and all that kind of stuff. The post-punk was definitely more arty. It was more, um, more jazzy, more playing with uh, rhythm textures and time signatures and, you know, being a little more avant-garde. And that's kind of what I was hearing from this album, along with, with, the, with you know, enough pop 
and, and actually a lot of uh, what in the 90s we would come to know as alternative. And, and some of what I was hearing, I thought, wow, this would have fit perfectly on the radio at about, in America at least, about 1994, 93, in that era. So because I've come to, well, both X's really, but you know, this X because we're discussing them, uh, so late in the piece. But I can only imagine, yeah, they would have fitted in very well. And I'm sure they did fit in very well into the um, our local alternative scene. And I should probably state at the outset that I find covering this album, at least for the local audience who may be listening to this, a little bit unsettling because I imagine that you know there are some people out there who you know have had X in their lives for a long time and and know them like the back of their hand because you know X, I do know enough to know that you know they they were far from obscure so really a lot of the people here who might like in melbourne who listen to triple r and pbs radio stations uh would be all too familiar with them and i I gotta say even though i only sort of like bought the album of at home with you uh, about 12 to 18 months ago but the album cover i certainly had been familiar with for you know for many years i had seen this album doing the rounds one of the offshoots of uh this band was a band called Ian Ryland and the Love Addicts, and I had actually heard one of their albums many, many years ago. It was, I guess, a bit more conventional. It, I mean, it was, you know, still not necessarily mainstream top forty material, far from it. But it was, I guess, a little bit more conventional in the rock and roll sense than what appears to be going on with uh, with this album. But look, as, as I said, that this band the mainstays of the band this wasn't the, the the lineup that's on at here at home with you i should say is not the lineup that started out the band basically there'd been a lot of tragedy within the band with uh, with drugs and deaths related to drugs so by the time they got to this album their second album the lineup was ian ryland on bass and uh, steve lucas on guitar and lead vocals, and Kathy Green on the kit. And she's sort of like, over the years when X has started and stopped and come back and gone away, Kathy Green has come in and out. And I believe actually it was only like a few years ago that X actually did a, a trip to the States. I don't think they'd ever done anything before that. And, you know, because, uh, you know, what we're talking about, you know, punks sort of going all country well, you know, mm-hmm. Kathy Green had become a mother. So the maternal thing wouldn't allow her to go to the States. But I think she played like for some of the local shows at that time and they had a different drummer for the overseas shows. So the edition of the album that I have is uh, a re-release on Aztec Records. And Aztec Records, if you're a local music fan, you'd know that they are sort of like the uh, the supreme reissue house here. They they do such a beautiful job. I guess, I don't know whether I'd refer, compare them to Rhino Records or not, maybe a little bit different in their approach, but Aztec Records was started up by the ex-drummer of Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs, Gil Matthews. He also played with Mondo Rock in the 80s, one of our uh, great pop bands, and he's basically sort of gone and made it his dedication to finding some of some of these obscure but and some maybe not so obscure uh, but great rock albums uh, in Australian music history 
that just sort of been out of the public eye for a while and give them the big remastering treatment with some bonus tracks, B-sides, live things. So he's gone and done it for you know, Masters Apprentices. He's gone and did it like for a Mondo Rock album last year, Chemistry. He's gone and done it for one of Tim's favourite bands called Buffalo. And just a lot of really great stuff. So the, the package here is absolutely beautiful. And I, I saw this in a one of our stores here in Melbourne and thought, look, I've heard enough about X that probably I should get this in my collection, be a little bit adventurous. So I went and um, got this album and yeah, just basically wanted to see where had Ian Ryland gone, you know, post-Rose Tattoo. Once again, it's, as I said, it's a little bit dangerous for me in some ways, feeling like I'm covering a band that you know, is beloved probably to you know maybe some of the listeners of the show and i'm coming from a perspective saying right well this band that you've loved for years i've only just gotten into so take it easy on me guys you know even though i should you know there's not necessarily i should have it's just well i finally caught up to them here's going to be my thoughts i don't have maybe some of the baggage but it, yeah i guess in a way it still seems a little bit unsettling as i said the album was produced by um, guitarist Lobby Lloyd and he'd uh, been the leader of his band The Coloured Balls which I know is another big band for our good friend and compadre Tim Merrill He'd also been an alumnus of uh, Rose Tattoo, so Ian and Lobby knew each other from there. And I think that the production on this album has really successfully walked a fine line here. There, there are bands that sound like they'd be more at home in a studio than in a live setting, and there are bands that you just know work best under live conditions. And X certainly falls in the latter camp. They definitely sound like they're the band that you would see live but i think lobby lloyd has produced this album in such a way that it still retains and i know that you said that in in, from your perspective and i'll really look forward to hearing you say a bit more about this that you think it sounds very polished but for me there's something of the raw sound in this album i think lobby lloyd has sort of walked that fine line between giving some of the rawness while still bringing out the best of them in the studio because i know that there are some some of the the albums and i know that when you've gone and done some of your punk specials mm-hmm. it's uh, some of the production values and some of those albums sound like the microphones have been placed in five paper bags or something like that and i think this sounds like an exciting band but the production values just don't necessarily give that off and i think he's uh, for me anyway successfully walked that fine line and, and given a bit of both here well i, I guess for me when I, when I think of it not being raw you know um Definitely, it's not that hyper-produced 80s kind of pop sheen like something like, say, uh, NXS had. You know, right. that, that the gated drums and the perfect sounds. Mm-hmm. It's not that. But at the same time, it doesn't sound like there was, uh, you know, when I, when I think raw, I'm thinking a band that had, you know, they, they had the band in one room and they mic that room and then they yep. had the singer in another room and they mic the singer and live to two track. That's what I think of when I think of it as raw. Okay. So it, it's not it's not either of those, but it's it's not to me. It it sounded like I said like a kind of '90s alternative as far as the polish goes. 
But at the same time, I think I, I definitely like one of the songs. I definitely heard like a Lime Spiders kind of a kind of a vibe, and that was kind of on the more raw edge of things. Okay. And at the same time, there's another song where I heard more of the Radio Birdman New Christ kind of a flavor, which which is raw but not as raw as the Lime Spiders were. Mm-hmm. Is that making kind of sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, no, no, definitely. It's actually interesting I, that you mentioned because I'm pretty sure that they ended up doing some gigs with. Radio Birdman. Certainly, I know I've got like in the in the booklet here. They've got a, a poster for a gig that they did at uh, one of our venues, which is it still exists, but not in the same fashion that it used to be called the Prince of Wales here in Melbourne. And within two nights, we had uh, X playing on one night and the Cosmic mm-hmm. Psychos the following night. And we recently discussed the Cosmic Psychos on the See Here podcast, and I think yeah, the Cosmic Psychos and X certainly uh, sound like two bands that go very well hand in hand. I wonder whether they ever played on the same bill. But yeah, I can definitely see the Birdman comparison for sure. Yeah, this is you know obviously just what I was hearing, and yeah, obviously like you said, with some of the punk stuff that I listen to, I mean raw is is, is kind of a different term. I mean. Mm. Uh, to be honest, one of my favorite albums that back in the 90s was an album that we were going to put out on our record label that never happened, but basically it was recorded by wrapping a tape recorder in a sweatshirt at the top of the stairs and plugging in the, the microphone for the vocals. And you know they used actually keyboards for the drums. Oh. At any rate, that is raw. That, yeah. that is like demo raw. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's, that's for me what that happens... But it's always been about the, the energy that's given off in spite of the, the production. You know, you can have crappy production, and we've all heard plenty of it, but it's at oh, both yeah. ends of the spectrum. It's the, the really badly, they didn't know where to put the microphones, they didn't have the time or the equipment to do it right. And then the other sp- end of the spectrum is the overpolished, highly compressed, mm. multiple overdubs, soulless you know kind of production and this this doesn't follow for me on either either end it's closer to the middle so just quickly sort of giving a bit of a overview well we've already gone and spoken about ian ryland being uh you know a member of the rose tattoo prior to this uh kathy green had funnily enough as a good comparison to the american ex her counterpart dj bonebreak had had this background in orchestral and jazz drumming and apparently kathy green had grown up being trained as a jazz drummer. And there's, I mean, maybe I guess because like doing like a Marky Ramone sort of thing, she'd say, well, you know, this is not that sort of band. I'm not going to bring those sort of chops into the band. And I often sort of wonder, it would have been a little bit more interesting if she'd sort of gone and done that. But, you know, never mind, she hasn't done that. And in this album, her drumming for me is absolutely really, really tight. And it's an interesting combination of, you know, Rylan on the bass and her on drum kit. They're a very, very tight rhythm section. But Ian Rylan has this, almost percussive sort of way of playing the bass. You can almost hear the plectrum on the strings, and it's rather than just the, the notes themselves. So it's a really interesting rhythm section approach that they have. And Steve Lucas, who has this really slashing sort of janglish guitar style, I guess as part of the punk ethos, there is no, or there are no guitar heroics here, and as there shouldn't be. Just some really solid playing from the guts. And his vocal style almost makes Tom Waits sound like he's a, like Tom Waits is a highly trained, highly polished singer. <laughs> his, his voice sounds like he's, he's drunk several bottles of bourbon and gargled gravel and smoked however many 
packets of cigarettes and add to that he, he sounds like his ankle was caught in a claw trap that snagged around his ankle and th- this um, really raw very brutal vocal style in some of these songs and that's a complete contrast to you know, John Doe's baritone style in the American X, but a very, very different approach here. Stylistically, the album, it's, it's got, I mean, okay, nominally, you know, punk or alternative, as you've already sort of kind of pointed it out. And actually, that was sort of like a question I forgot to ask you with the American X is really, were they a punk band? And you've already sort of gone and indicated, I guess, that you'd see them more as, you know, a country and alternative band and here. I guess we can both agree that they're maybe an alternative band that are dictated to by country styles and uh, to um, alternative styles, whatever that might sort of mean. So, but, but really, the the style of music that, that both of these bands are playing and the, both of these records have, which are coming out within three or four years of each other, mm. give, or, give or take of release dates. Yes. You know, they, they also capture a certain amount of where the culture was at the time musically. Yeah. You know, we're... we're you know, in the landscape of, you know, 1982, 1985, we're seeing, like I said, the first wave of punk, fall, you know, and, but we're also seeing, you know, new wave, which was oftentimes power pop passed off as punk. We're seeing that kind of morph into something else in the marketplace. Um, with, with both of these bands and both of, of uh, these records, what we're seeing is the beginning of what was referred to as college rock in the 80s, which was basically what we now call alternative. I mean, this is where REM and U2 and even NXS were were lumped in in the beginning. The sounds, uh, are they punk? Are they not punk? Well, yes and no, because there's definitely the energy of punk and there's definitely some of the attitude of punk in both of these bands, but both of them have passed definitely the three chords and an attitude stage of their their songwriting and their recording and moved on to you know whatever that next step is whether it's a you know an alternative power pop kind of a sound or like a you know a more rootsy rock kind of a sound. Right. Well, I'm going to talk about first track on the album now called The Feel. into that a band which I think is a, uh, a very good comparison at least from this other band's early days um, so the opening track on the album The Feel it for me it could not have appeared anywhere else on this album we spoke before on Under the Big Black Sun about that calling card and mm-hmm. The Feel for me is a gr- another great opening track there's this strong level of menace here and that's it's also present in other songs but the build and the arrangement really scream opening song to me and we have Rylan and Green's very tight very muscular sort of rhythm section patterns starting up you know Rylan's bass is brought up very much 
to the front of the mix in uh, a lot of the album's production. It's, it's just very dirty and very nasty as opposed to just sort of like being there to support the rest of the band. Uh, and I love the arrangement here. So we get these guitar stabs by Steve Lucas, which also sound rough and ready. And you get this, you know, very tough sounding intro. And then this is what I think was arrangement genius. And I don't know whether there's someone in the band who thought of this or whether it was Lobby Lloyd earning his uh, production fee. But just in a musical sense, I'm going to go here. You get these eight downbeat guitar stabs followed each time, uh, followed by uh, eight horn section downbeat stabs. And I should say this is probably what sets this off about, right, okay, it's not just going to be this punk album. This is what sets it into something in that what you call a college rock or alternative rock. They've done something really clever here with bringing in the horn section. And the horn section were called the uh, the Horns of Contempt, uh, which was uh, Jack Howard on trumpet, Jeremy Smith on French horn, and Michael Waters on trombone. And they were members of um, a group that started out as, like you were talking about before, Eric, in, in sort of the alternative scene and then became massive in the mainstream and they changed but they changed their musical style as they went on and there was a band called hunters and collectors and you know people i guess are sort of divided you know do they like the early music better do they like the later music better and i guess actually they, they, they had three distinct periods and i guess i probably more often fall into the uh, the middle scene they had an album called ghost nation with a, a really great track called when the river runs dry and that that album for me is absolutely all killer but coming back to this before i'd sort of gone and read the names of who was playing in the horn section on this track the feel i thought to myself wow this sounds really much like a very early hunters and collectors song like something like the slab or say goodbye section was the hunters and collectors horn section so i thought right well that's uh, no coincidence but it's not just because of their horns it, that that muscular sort of bass section was exactly what hunters and collectors are doing on those tracks that i mentioned but another band and i, I wouldn't say that i'm really intimately acquainted with a lot of their stuff but i'd listen to you know one of the albums would be the birthday party Strike you as being a similar thing? Are, are you? Yeah, in, in, in some ways, uh, the birthday party is also one of those bands that, oftentimes, was tagged as punk. But I always heard them more as part of that that kind of post-punk avant-garde Captain Beefheart kind of kind of music that's not necessarily pop accessible. It's not. I don't recall it being very hook-driven. No, no, it wasn't. No. 
It, yeah, look, I, I hadn't sort of thought about Beefheart, but yeah, I so, said, yeah, probably uh, Beefheart Circa Trapmarks Replica is a, oh, yeah. a very good comparison. It's not, not so much the early blues styles, I think, although I know oh, Nick, no. Cave is, Nick Cave is definitely uh, a blues fan. It, it, it probably some of his um, Bad Seed stuff is more dictated by his blues influences. But yeah, the birthday party probably is some of that um, uh, Trapmask Replica influence of uh, Captain Beefheart. And probably, interestingly enough, when I was reading up an article on allmusic.com, it made an interesting comparison, which I hadn't thought of, and see what you think, that it says that they sort of thought X was probably um, a, a good comparison would be the Stooges, which we previously covered on this show. So how do you yeah. see, how would you sort of see, like in, in, in any phase, you know, like early Stooges or raw power, do you see X as a sort of valid comparison to that? I don't know about comparison. I, I did... You know, I saw the song titled TV Glue, and my first thought was TVI. But yeah, yeah, yeah. But, it, yeah and, but it's musically nothing like that. Yeah. Um, maybe a little bit. And, I, and it, maybe that also is the, you know, the through line of the Stooges to Radio Birdman, to so many other of the bands that Radio Birdman worked with and influenced. So, you know, I don't, I don't, don't recall hearing anything in particular that, that made me think of the Stooges. But I, you know, I definitely, like I said, I saw that song title, and you know, even the song title, the feel kind of sounds like, you know, like a Stooges song or mm-hmm. like a song that was like a damn song that was inspired by the Stooges that then, you know, had another life with somebody else picking up on those those threads. You know, and that song title like "Degenerate Boy," which is the one I thought sounded like the Lime Spiders. That's another okay. kind of Stoogian song title. It's interesting you mentioned that because I thought that the, the, the riff in Degenerate Voice sounded like a Pon Scott era ACDC song oh. in some ways, which you know is perfectly fine because I mean I'm, I'm a big fan of that era. Well, but, the, the, what I what I heard of the Lime Spiders in that particular song was the vocals more than anything else. Okay, the, kind of that that screeching high pitch. Um, you know, the song uh, was it Cave Girl, which which is you know the, the, the Lime Spider song that people know. That's what I was hearing there. Okay, I, I love that this song, Degenerate Boy, it has, it, it, like a lot of stuff on the album, it does have this gritty and desperate style to it, and apparently, though, I haven't, it's a film that I haven't caught up with yet, from I think the 90s with Ben Mendelsohn called Idiot Box, and we had a band here called The Mark of Cain that do a cover version of uh, Degenerate oh, really? Boy. I've not actually gotten around to uh, uh, listening to that version, I haven't watched the film, which is strange because it's actually a film I have wanted to watch for a while. Oh well, let's uh, let's see if I can find that at the library. <laughs> but uh, anyways, but yeah, no. So the, the X version, the music. I, I guess it's. It, well, I keep using that word grit, and it's interesting that you know Lucas's voice uh, has that desperate and gritty feel, and it's more so even than Tattoo's Angry Anderson. And I make that comparison because Ian Ryland was a member of both both bands, and um, you know. I think Ian Ryland was on the record as saying that he wanted to go somewhere that was going to be a little bit more hardened, more desperate. You know, I mean, I, I guess it, uh, Rose Tattoo 
did have that bad boy swagger, but they were still within the mainstream, and X were never going to be in um, it played on played on 3XY or, or 3 triple M, uh, which were the main stream radio stations of you know, the early, well, the late 70s, early 80s down here. Another comparison I want to make with the vocals on this album, I was going to say I want to know whether they had, but obviously they, they did have an influence on this. It's a strange one. Uh, listening to his vocals, I got the feeling of John Lennon's vocals on the, the first post-Beatles solo album, the Plastic Ono Band, where you know John Lennon was going through this whole Arthur Yarn of primal scream therapy sort of thing and then going to uh, a little bit of a look down the rabbit hole on YouTube, lo and behold I find out that Local X had done a cover version of the opening track off that album called Mother Obviously, uh, Steve Lucas had heard that song and thought, right, I'm going to let this dictate what I do. Uh, and, uh, you know, for the record, it's actually you know, quite a very, very good cover version, but he'd obviously gone and taken that a little bit further and let it sort of uh, dictate his uh, singing style a lot on, uh, well, at least on this album. I don't know about uh, any other X stuff that they've gone and done. I mean, I've watched a little bit of uh, video footage and uh, found out that he's not always singing like that, but uh, it's obviously something that appealed to him. And I thought it was, a, you know, for a band like this, it was an interesting uh, choice of cover. And what we were speaking about earlier on, Eric, about uh, you know, the bands of the Los Angeles scene, you know, they could be, uh, you know, punk, but we always sort of associate punk with rebellion and wanting to go mm -hmm. a different way from what had come before. But that Los Angeles punk scene had, if not let it dictate, but they had maybe some sense of reverence at what had come before there, or at least a sense of respect. And the same thing is, you know, here here we are, like in 2015, and maybe, you know, you sort of got your young people who sort of the thought of going back 30, 40 years is abhorrent to them. But, you know, really, we've got to sort of like look that in uh, at that period. It had only been, well, okay, 15 years between Lennon's Plastic Ono band coming out. And really, given that they formed in 77, it had only been seven years before since that, that came out and maybe they were re they, they were still wanting maybe to go to different places but they weren't ready to sort of throw out the baby with the bathwater as it is mm -hmm. at that time they still this was their point of reference this is what i listened to and i want to do something more aggressive and what i want to throw away is the overblown prog rock but you know that out that plastic ono band is still a very very raw album where you know lennon was saying i'm pissed off with the Beatles, I'm pissed off with everything, and I'm coming up with this very raw-sounding album. So. From what I've heard from a lot of people that were part of that 70s punk scene is they were picking up on <clears throat> things like David Bowie and Lou Reed and yes. John Lennon who were experimenting with a lot of different sounds and music in the early 70s at the same time that a good amount of the kraut rock that was going on in, in, or in uh, Germany was trying to basically reinvent new sounds and whatnot. 
Mm-hmm. So it would not be a surprise to me that while those bands of, of the punk era didn't want to you know, necessarily be covering the Beach Boys pop hits, that yep. looking at those avant-garde records and also we talked about Captain Beefheart and you know, free jazz was a big thing with the proto-punk movement that and bebop. So that all that those influences came in and that's a lot of what what especially post punk I think was mixing was that real avant-garde jazz sound but with the kind of more p- basic uh chops of an energy of punk rock. Mm, mm. Uh, so I wouldn't be surprised at all if that's that was something they were drawing from. No, no, not at all. Probably just in another couple of tracks that I wanted to bring to the table i don't know if there are any specific tracks that you wanted to eric before i, um, I think we've talked about most of the ones that, that that really just kind of stood out for me so uh, well actually one that you had already mentioned here tv glue Sort of gone and made a note that uh, I, I found TV Glue to be absolutely hypnotic with you know the quaver guitar chords you know incessantly working their way into your brain pretty much like watching TV does and it's actually interesting because we talked about the cover of Under the Big Black Sun but we got this cover here of the three members of X sitting on a couch and you know, the, the glare of the TV looking uh, looking at them and it's far from you know some of the depressing sounds or the rather dark sounds I should say on this album but you know you've got the, the three of them sitting around having a couple of beers and having a bit of a laugh and I think according to the liner notes or something else that I read it said that they were really watching TV and they might have been watching the, the Cosby show so I'm wondering <laughs> which is you know in 2015 I think the less said about that the better but yeah no, no TV glue really worked its way into uh, into my brain it's, it's just it's an unusual song structure because you know we got one verse there's an instrumental section there's a spoken word thing done over the riff and then an outro of them singing tv glue stuck on you i find it interesting that they decided we we're going to sort of throw some of the conventions out of traditional song structure we just we like this we like where it's going we're just going to put it out like this and see what you think and i think it absolutely works works really well works a treat and the the vocal style here though is very different from the gargling with gravel style that we get from steve lucas on the, some of the other some of the other tracks and i love that trumpet once again whoever came up with the idea for it, it it's just it doesn't take away from the desperation or the despondency that the song gives up it almost gives it a little bit of extra melancholy for me i just love the, probably my favorite tracks on the albums are any that involve the trumpet or a horn section hmm. all right i was just gonna say about about not to put you at a dead stop that something that occurs to me with uh with you know having a song called tv glue is there's this through line through punk rock of songs about television you've got you know the, the victims and their song television addict which is a classic you've got uh tv party by black flag you you know you got tv glue you've got television generation by the carousel flyers and then you've got you know even up to uh an album i, I covered a while back uh the Wild Hearts, 
and their song TV Tan, which all you know are part of this looking at television as a um, you know as, as a time suck and an energy suck and a creativity suck. You know, we talked about the Stooges TVI, which is using television as a different kind of a metaphor. But all the rest of those songs really talk about television in a negative way. Oh, sure. As, Look, I mean, I, I'm not saying necessarily that TV glue is necessarily unique and that it, you know, that subject matter has never been done before. But I just no. think that they particularly do what they do with the subject matter and with this song very, very well. Yeah, no, and I'm not. I'm not saying that it's that it's not unorig- that it's not one original anything. What I'm saying is it's part of that continuum of this this uh, punk rock discussion about television. Interesting. Okay, so you've made the link that it's part of a punk rock tradition, and that's uh, yeah. Well, yeah, that, okay, yeah. It, this continuum of, of this idea that you know this is something that we passively consume in Western society that. We need to be asking, what's it really doing for us? It's really quite fascinating because, you know, a lot of the conversations that we have or the, the GGTMC community has is over movies that we are watching on TV or if not necessarily yeah. at the cinema or, or on you know, Netflix or DVDs or whatever the format is. And we're celebrating that. And yet it seems to be quite a common thing, as you're pointing out, within within musical culture to to sort of say, well, it is this energy suck or it is this creativity yeah. suck. And yet, it basically, we're, we're consuming someone else's creativity. Yeah, but at, at the same time, when, when most of these songs were written and recorded, uh, what was being projected on the television, we had little control over. You, had, right. you could choose from three channels. When, when we're talking about watching movies or watching television now, it's we can set our own parameters of, you know, if I want to, at midnight, I want to watch a sitcom, I can just call it up and watch it. Mm. I don't have to schedule my, you know, my evening time around it or my family time around it. Right. You know, or if we want to watch it on my lunch break at work on my phone or something like that. But it's not the, you know, when I was growing up, there was this block of time from 8 o'clock till 11.30, that that was TV time. And if you were, didn't sit in front of the television and consume one of the three or four options that, you know, you were out of step with the culture or, you know, you, the next day at work or at school, you had no idea what people are talking about. So right. I, I see it as a little bit different of a, of, a, of a thing today, what's going on as opposed to what the, this, this music of the late 70s through the 80s and into the 90s was talking about. One more song I want to talk about and then just a couple of final thoughts the other song that i really appreciate on the album and you know i've already gone and indicated probably that my favorites were the ones which had the horn sections and i I, having said that i did love it all but this is the one that stands stands apart from the rest of the album and even here there's there's uh something of a a well there's a lot of a dark side to it it's a song called don't cry no tears don't cry no tears what's done is done Yeah, you know, it, that's different because it's it's an acoustic song, and it has a very melancholy feel to it. it it's it's not a ballad in the traditional sense. You know, you, you still, I mean, you're getting the acoustic, slow-paced, twelve-string guitar, 
and you get uh, the French horn, which makes it sound melancholy, and the lyrics seem to uh, want to give someone some hope in a very bleak frame of mind, but you keep getting, especially towards the end, that slashing electric guitar, which we get on the rest of the album, over the, the coda of the song, and it really speaks volume of what trouble may be around the corner, and there's not going to be any respite for the person who uh, the singer is, you know, going, is trying to comfort. So it's still keeping in with uh, some of the bleakness of the rest of the album. It's not celebratory, unlike what you get on Under the Big Black Sun, which also covers themes, very dark themes, but ultimately, musically, it seems more like a celebratory album. This one sort of seems it's not necessarily a rallying against the world sort of album, but it is also about relationships gone wrong. For me, it sounds a lot more dark, even though it does have a lot of the performance energy that that American X Band has. So, but anyway, but yeah, don't cry no tears. I find to be a you know a bit of a chilling song. I, I really really love it, and that that French horn sound in there, man, it just it just knocks me out. I, I really love. It. I think it's a really great creative touch overall. Yeah, just a, an album that I like. Summing up, a, a great album, at least you know from my perspective, I, an album I really really enjoyed and one that had taken me out of my comfort zone and I picked up the album as I said 18 months ago on a more I really need to <laughs> listen to this sort of thing rather than oh, I've heard this and it's great and yeah it took me a little while I was thinking at first oh what have I got myself in for but I'm finding probably because of you know people like yourself and Tim that I'm expanding uh, my horizons what I listen to and it doesn't always necessarily just have to be rootsy and easily accessible melodies I mean look I always think I have been re- pretty adventurous but this took me to different places that I hadn't sort of like uh, gone and wandered in their in their backyard as it were so um mm-hmm. probably uh, my big thanks to you and uh, and tim for allowing me to listen to something like this and really enjoy it so i mean overall would this be an album that you'd recommend to listeners yeah i think people should check this out i think they should should definitely hear it especially if you know they're, they're into something that's i don't want to say super experimental or anything but but definitely if you like something like the lime spiders or the gang of four stuff or that that post-punk period it's worth hearing if you like 80s college rock stylings, it's, it's worth checking out. And, you know, you're going you're gonna to like it or you're not, but I don't think it's going to be something that, that people are going to be like, oh, they sent me to this really awful, you know, atonal, you know, somebody hitting one xylophone key for an hour kind of, kind of thing. I mean, that's not what this is. It's, it's a solid 80s, you know, post-punk, poppy rock record. Yep. And it's, it's you know... Maybe it's not going to grab you with every single track on the first listen, but it's definitely something that's worth listening to a couple of times and see if it connects with you. Cool. All right. Uh, so well, I should probably sort of give a little bit of a mention of what we're going to be covering next time. So for the next main Love That Album show, I'm going to be joined by Bernard Stickwell, and we're going to be going 180 degrees from this, probably into more conventional territory for me. Well, maybe not more conventional, but something that is an album that I have loved for many, many years in the the singer-songwriter vein. And it's actually, well, we're going to be covering more like the musical career, because it was really only two records by a Californian singer-songwriter called Judy Sell. And she had a couple of uh, albums, one self-titled, one called Heart Food. And we're going to basically sort of, you know, not necessarily go album by album or track by track, but we basically sort of like cover the legacy and the music on both albums and her history, which was tragic in a lot of ways. She had a very tragic story, which we'll uh, touch into. And yet musically, she took some of her difficulties and really made something beautiful out of it musically. And unfortunately, she didn't 
live long enough to see i wouldn't necessarily say the revival that she's had but a lot of more people are now discovering her which i think is a wonderful thing so we'll be talking about judy cell and as a possible addition we're not 100 percent sure yet early may is going to see the release of an artist that uh, bernie and i are big big fans of we thought we'd heard maybe the final album from bill fay another songwriter who i'd gone and compared as the uh, maybe the J.D. Salinger of the music world, someone who'd made a couple of albums in the early 70s, went away and hid and then was pulled out of obscurity by a music lover to record uh, an album just from a couple of years ago called Life is People that Bernie and I covered. And much to my delight, we found out that Bill Fay has yet more things to say and has gone and recorded a new album, which is coming out at the end of April, the beginning of May. So we might have enough time to buy a copy of that and have a few thoughts, maybe not necessarily comprehensive, but we might touch on that as well. But we're definitely going to be talking about Judy Cell in episode 75 of Love That Album. And by the time this episode comes out, the, uh, the latest episode of Love That Album, the compilation edition, will already be out. So you may have already heard it, but just in case folks out there haven't heard onto that album, you want to give a bit of a, a description of what uh, the next album of uh, the compilation edition is going to be coming? Yeah, that's the uh, the Power Pop one, where I talk about the uh, Rhino Records DIY compilation series, basically covering American Power Pop. There's two volumes of that. Mm-hmm. And then there's, a, there's a, also a Rhino Records 70s uh, era power pop compilation called Poptopia that's the first in a three disc series that all three of them together the Poptopia plus the two DIY ones nicely encapsulate an overview of American power pop from the early 70s into probably about the mid 80s the the other two uh, volumes of Poptopia one of them is centered on the 80s and one on the 90s and I don't get into those two at all much at all. There is some crossover between all of the, the albums, but as I think I stated at the beginning of the year, I, I was trying trying to push for a little more rock, a little less singer-songwriter, which we all like, but <laughs> trying to push a little bit against that, that wall of um, trying to get some other sounds on, on the show. So that is what, uh, what the, the uh, latest edition of the compilation series is about well i'm i'm a huge power pop fan as you are well aware so you don't have to twist my arm terribly much to get any power pop and in fact well I'll, I'll speak about it next month but i can assure you that we have some great power pop goodness okay. coming up in the uh love that album 76 so that'll be the one after the judy Sill episode but more details about that in the coming weeks all right well once again eric thank you so much for um being on uh, this episode and not a problem and once again also a huge thank you for your ongoing contribution really as i'm saying this show is as much yours as it is mine because well thank uh, you for having me uh, always always glad so um we'll hopefully uh do some shooting the shit uh as i said i'm aiming for maybe around august so we'll find we'll find a topic that the crew can sink into and have a nice lengthy debate and Hopefully, we'll all still end up friends at the end of it. Uh, all right. Death metal. We're going to do death metal. No, I'm uh, not in the show. No, maybe. The, although, mind you, if I were to ask Max to take part, he'd probably take up the whole two, three hours by himself. So, um, yeah, no, thanks as well to you listeners out there. Please feel free to spread the word about the show. If you've enjoyed it, please feel free to give us an, uh, an iTunes review or send me an email or really. But the best thing would be just to tell a friend that the show exists and get them to listen to it as well. Even if there's just one or two particular episodes, that's fine. Spread the word 
always happy to have new people along and I'm always really thrilled to have people write in and say, hey, I'd love to do a show with you and talk about a particular album. Always looking for new people to dig into, always looking to expand my conversation list. So um, feel free to contact me. And that is about it. We'll see you in a few weeks with uh, Love That Album episode 75. Until then, please feel free to be nice to each other and listen to some great podcasts and watch some great movies and read some great books. All right. Cheers, folks. Nice.